friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. talking about uh, encounters with Jesus, that the resurrected Jesus came and showed himself to various groups of people, and today we come to one of the most famous encounters, one of the most famous conversion stories in the history of the world. This is the story about when Saul encounters Jesus and then later becomes Paul. So you'll, you'll hear me inter, uh, use those two names interchangeably today, Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul, same person. Um, well, technically, he was a very changed person. Started off by being a man who sought to do the most harm to the early Christian church, but then God... But God, right, rescues him, and he becomes the writer of 25% of the New Testament. And so we're going to read about his story today, and we're going to see if there's some things that we can pick up and maybe uh, apply or maybe even evaluate our lives against. If, if you would, sometimes we do this where we like to stand and honor the reading of the Scripture, if you would do that today. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 will read uh, 1 through 11 and then 17 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him Saul Saul why do you persecute me who are you Lord Saul asked I am Jesus whom you are persecuting now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless they heard the sound but did not see anyone Saul got up from the ground, but when he had opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord. Then he told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask, the, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Heavenly Father, would you take this message, would you take this set of words that you inspired a long time ago, bring them to life, and breathe into us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, for sure, no two conversion stories uh, are the same. Some are dramatic, some are quiet, some happen all of the sudden, and some happen over a long period of time. And so I'm not going to insinuate today that there's this step-by-step process that we can uh, discover from, from uh, Paul's story, Saul's conversion to Paul, that we have to apply to our life. I, I think it's better to think in terms of uh, elements or episodes within conversion. And I think there are at least three episodes that we see from Saul to Paul's story. And this leads, I believe, to thorough conversion. The first is encounter. That's verses 1 through 5. Then we have obedience, which we saw in verses 6 through 9. And then this reorientation of his life, verses 17 through 19, and really throughout the rest of his life that we all get to eavesdrop on because, again, he wrote a quarter of the New Testament. So the first thing, the first thing that we see is encounter, encounter. Paul came face to face with the one true God, not the one that he had constructed in his mind or even the one that had been passed down to him through his religion. How many know that one encounter face to face with Jesus can change everything? Both of you. How many people know that a face-to-face encounter with Jesus can change everything? That's what happened to Paul. See, it's not what he expected at all. That is not what he expected. He did not expect a God like that. He expected a God that would be honored because Paul himself defended God as if he needed to do that. He, He expected a God where he better defend Paul better defend God or God would be out to get him. You step outside this box, this list of rules, and I'll get you where his God, Saul's God, looked a whole lot like Zeus, right? With a lightning bolt in one hand and an accusatory finger in the other. That's what Saul's God looked like. He did not expect what he found. What he found was something vastly different than a religion of self-righteousness and striving, where you could earn his favor, earn God's favor. You see, Saul, most of his life, if not his whole life, had a zeal for God. He just didn't know God until now. And what he discovered is what we have to discover if we're going to be thoroughly converted, if we're going to be full followers of Christ, we have to understand and see face-to-face what Paul saw. And he saw that God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time in the history of our world where God has not looked like Jesus. We just didn't always know that. Humanity didn't always know that until Jesus showed up. Hebrews 1 says he is the exact representation of the Father. God looks like Jesus. 
So if you have a different version in your mind put there from, from church or Sunday school or, or, or a well-intending parent that doesn't look like Jesus, I just want to invite you today to encounter the real thing. Encounter a God who looks like Jesus. See, Saul found out that it was no longer about following a set of rules to get to the Father. It's no longer about striving. It, it wasn't even about pursuing. It was about being found. For Saul, this encounter not only showed him who God was truly like, but who he was and what he was like. Because Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the Nikola Jokic. He was the Jordy Ball. For the non-athlete fans, I don't know music very well. Who, who, who's, who's, a, who's, who's doing it well in music these days, Jordan? Don't ask it. Timberlake? Is Justin Timberlake still? No? No? Taylor Swift. Sweet! Taylor Swift. Okay. I hate... I hate to use the analogy, but Paul was the Taylor Swift. Don't let that go on the podcast. <laughs> oh, Pharisees back in the day. He said of himself, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. If religion could have ever made a person right with God, it would have been Saul from Tarsus. But religion didn't make Paul better, did it? Didn't make Saul better. It made him bitter. And he had studied God's word. Listen, he had studied it. And he had memorized God's word. But it wasn't until he met God's word made flesh on a road that everything changed. He met a God that pursued him. So that's the first element. That's the first episode that happens to all of us. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there today and you can remember back to the time when the lights came on and you encountered him face to face and he was so gentle. I had an interaction with a, with a guy this week and he, he was feeling like he was being told different things. Hey, I want you to go confess this sin to that person. I want you to go confess that sin to this person. He's like, okay, I, I will. I'll do anything you ask me to do, God. But, but I don't feel like that's really me. And, and so he got real nervous. And he's like, but I'm going to do it. I want to be holy, fully, thoroughly devoted to you. And so he goes into the restroom at his workplace just to kind of muster up the courage and he heard a different voice. This one, instead of accusatory, you go tell them and you go confess your sin. If, you want, if you're going to be fully devoted to Jesus, if you're going to be fully devoted to me, you go do this. But when he walked into the bathroom, he heard a totally different voice. It was a still small voice of love and kindness. And he said, those things, that's not for me. And those things... That's not you. That's not you. The voices are completely different when we encounter the real thing. First is encounter, then obedience. Then obedience. 
Verse 6, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. See, when we're obedient, I mean, just think about what was at stake for Paul to obey. He could have not, he could have gone the other direction. Could have been blind. He's like, oh my gosh, I got to get back to my doctor, my ophthalmologist. He, he, he knows better. I mean, this is seriously, I, serious. I got I to get back there. I got to take care of this. No, he, he obeyed. And, and what that reminds me is there is a whole lot more at stake when Jesus speaks to us and calls us than our comfort zone. But when we are obedient, when we are obedient, God reveals more and he offers more. Sometimes we think, man, I, I just, I haven't heard him. I, it doesn't feel like he's revealing himself. And I would just say, this may not be true. I would just simply say, has he revealed something to you in the past that you haven't acted on, that you haven't been obedient to? We understand this as parents. You're not going to tell your kid to go do something else until they do the first thing you told them to do, right? And as a loving father, he's the same way. So if you haven't heard from him, Lord, just, hey, repeat it. I'm listening today. Is there anything you want me to go back and do? Because he will always reveal more, offer more. Saul was blind three days, didn't eat, didn't drink. What was he doing? I don't know for sure. But we got 25% in the New Testament that kind of tells us what he might have been doing. He might have been connecting those dots of the word of God that he had read and memorized in his heart. And all of a sudden he's going, oh my goodness, all of these things are pointing to Jesus. See, and we, we read Philippians, man, just you read two and three, I guarantee in those three days, some of those ideas were birthed in his blindness there. He's thinking obedient God left there to come here to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Michael Gorman writes it this way. For Paul, the will of God is known in the essence in the obedient death of Jesus. In concrete and specific ways, however, God's will is known only when one offers oneself and one, one's body daily as a living sacrifice to one's rightful Lord. You want to know the will of the Father for your life? Obey one step at a time. John 5, 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father whom he sent. Our relationship with God is predicated on how we honor and dishonor the Son of God through our obedience or our disobedience to him. We were in the prayer room and Christina said after everybody had gone, she's like, I didn't know if I was going to share this during when everybody else was in here, which by the way, you ought to come eavesdrop or just come join prayer before the service because it's way better than the service. But I'll tell you what she said. She said, these rules that we need to obey, they're not really rules. The Lord's revealed to her that they are rules for human flourishing. You want to flourish as a human? Just follow what he says. It's not a heavy weight. It's freedom. He did not seek, Jesus did not seek to do his own will or what seemed right to him. He just wanted to do the will of the Father. He's our master and he's our model. And Paul just did what he saw and heard that his master did. 
Sometimes we just need to keep it simple, stupid, right? Just, just, just watch how somebody else who's thoroughly devoted, right? I think that's what Paul's saying when he invites you and me, follow me. Hey, come follow me as I follow Jesus. And as you do this, listen, as you do this, there'll be people behind you who are following you as, you follow, as you're following Paul who's following Jesus, right? It's how the kingdom gets unleashed in the world. The Christian life, although difficult at times, it's, it's actually really simple. As a young youth pastor, we were studying all these, how is God moving throughout the world? And, and, and at that time, I, this may still be true, at that time, he was moving in Korea more so than any other place. And we were like, oh my goodness, what's he doing over there? How do we get this, this revival that Jonathan was talking about last week? How do we get that here on American soil? How do we get that right here in Oklahoma City? And as a, as a youth pastor, we were introduced to Dr. Yong Ji Cho. Don't know if that's right. We'll just roll with it. But he was the pastor of the world largest church uh, at that time and everybody was going to him and he's saying what's the secret what are you guys doing what are you doing pastor and he says I pray and I obey I pray and I obey and obedience is like oxygen, right? If you give oxygen to a fire, it grows. Obedience grows the fire within you and the fire cannot be contained and goes out of you and that's how the kingdom advances. Chase said it this way this week, obedience results. I almost left doctor off. I thought it was kind of funny. But don't miss, don't miss the line. Obedience results in the invasion of heaven to earth. I don't know if he stole it or not. If he did, I'm proud of him. We only steal the good stuff in the Dewey family. That's good stuff. Paul was not the only one who encountered and then obeyed. Ananias. We left out a part in what we read at the beginning. You don't have to stand again for this one, but you do need to listen. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. Uh, the Lord said, Ananias, uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In case you didn't know this, Lord, you might have missed this. This guy's dangerous. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much uh, he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you ever wondered if anybody's praying for you, you were prayed for today. The prayer team prayed for you today for two things. That your eyes might be open and that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Prayed the same thing for me. That your eyes might be open and that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I, I, I wrestled and was stuck on this a whole lot. I'm like, did, did God need Ananias? Oops, sorry. Did God need Ananias to bring sight and to fill him with the Holy Spirit? I mean, it seems like the answer would be no, right? But it's not how it played out. He, he, he decided to use, use a person, which I thought was amazingly enlightening. He, he chose to use and partner with Ananias, and Ananias's positive response to the challenge, to the call to obedience, impacts you and me thousands of years later. We would not be reading what we're reading today in the way we're reading it today, had Ananias said, I'm too scared. What you're calling me to, I could lose my life. Yeah, you could. But you could also gain it. And he did. And we did because he obeyed. Obedience is always, has always been, the key to unlocking the power of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. You got that? God doesn't do anything that he can delegate to, to the people that are his creatures. He commands us to slowly and blunderingly do what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. It takes him longer. It's not as faultless. It's not as perfect as if he were to do it. But Tim Keller says, God did not want a domain to dominate, but a people to partner with. That's who we are. He wants to partner with, his, with us imperfect, blundering people to bring about his will on earth so that it would be done here as it is there. So, we see an encounter face-to-face -face with Jesus. We see obedience. And then the third episode is this reorientation. Reorientation. So we can see the fruit of Saul's conversion by reading the New Testament. But what happened? What happened to take Paul from this zealous murder? It takes, I mean, you think of, I don't know who the best guy in our church is. Ron Crawford. Let's say it's Ron Crawford. Nice, gentle, loving Ron Crawford. And Saul had him taken out back and stoned and murdered. That's who Paul was before. And what happened to go from that to teaching us all how to follow Jesus? It was full conversion. That's all I know to call it. It was just a full conversion, not half-hearted. This is wholehearted. Paul didn't tiptoe into this conversion. He, he jumped in from the deep end. And it reminds me of what Walter Hooper said about C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Walter Hooper was, was, he was called a secretary. We would call him an assistant today. He would just followed C.S. Lewis around and, and he would talk and Paul, you know, he would help C.S. Lewis with all of his different talks and he would write down and when, when C.S. Lewis would just start riffing, he's like, oh, that's good. We got to write that down. You can make a book out of that. That's, that's who Walter Hooper is. And he said one of the closest people to a human says this about another human, that Lewis was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. Is there anything else you would rather have somebody say about you? Your spouse, your kids, 
your coworkers. I don't know, man. That dude, that woman, most thoroughly converted person I have ever met. He went on to say Lewis's whole life, every aspect of his being, his decisions, how he spent his time, and the words he spoke all revolved around knowing and following Jesus. All of it. Thoroughly converted. And that is accessible to all of us who become Christians. A total reorientation, a total surrender of every aspect of our being. Sadly. Sadly, many of us have huge portions of our lives that remain untouched by the goodness and power of God. We withhold parts of our lives, our dating relationships, our bank account, our free time, what we think about, and we believe that we can, we can be in Christ partly and live for ourselves partly too. But thoroughly converted, fully converted people know that a whole life committed completely to Christ is better than any half-life that we could hold on to. And to have this thorough conversion means that we must commit time, yes, to be in His Word. We must seek Him passionately, spend time with His people. We must fast, pray, and give. But see, in religion, and a lot of us grew up this way, in religion, that was the end. Those things were the end. But in discipleship, those are just simply a means to an end, and the end is thorough conversion. And it's the elder's deepest desire that all of those who would say you're a follower of Jesus and are a part of Skyline, that you would be thoroughly converted, that we would be thoroughly converted, that our lives would be radically transformed by the gospel that Jesus is God and that every Christian might live fully converted, wholly devoted lives to Jesus in this city. The reason you hear every Sunday morning we're a disciple-making church, partly it is to tell you, but mostly it's to remind us who we are and why we do what we do. We're a disciple-making church because a life reoriented around Jesus is a joy-filled life. It is the better part. It's the best part. And to use Jesus' words when he was talking to, to Mary, you know, in the Mary Martha story, when he says, this is the one thing necessary. Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, intently listening to what he had to say in the place of a disciple where women weren't usually invited. She's sitting where she's supposed to be. And he says this, Jesus says this, sitting at my feet, gazing at me, this is the one thing necessary. We understand this kind of reorientation in lots of other spaces in our life, right? Chase and Mao in a month or so, they're going to they're gonna understand that love demands this kind of reorientation. And if you've walked over and seen our nursery, most of you have just experienced this, it seems like, in the last few weeks, months, or year, right? That's that place is full over there. But, but, but here's what you're going to experience is that once love happens, everything changes, when Chase was born, Alicia and I reoriented our entire life around him. He didn't even ask. He 
just showed up. And one day, just softball, church softball league, and golf got greatly, greatly reduced, and our disposable income went way down, right? This individual who we had just, just met, we barely knew, dominated our time, our attention, and our resources. Why? Because that's what love does. Ever had that friend? who met that person and all of a sudden they vanished. They reoriented their entire life around another person. That's what we're talking about. Because here's the deal. We reorient our lives around the things we love, not things we merely believe. I think it's why they gave us two commands. Love God. Love other people. Reorient your life around me and my people and life will flourish. That's what happened to Paul. He learned the worth of Jesus. He took everything that he once valued in his life and he compared it to this newfound realization of who Jesus really was, who God really was. Philippians 3.8. More than that, I regard everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I suffer, suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may regain Christ. I love how the NTE says it. Yes, I know that's weird, but there's more. I calculate everything as a loss because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. In fact, because the Messiah, I've suffered the loss of everything and I now calculate it as trash so that I might profit so that my profit may be the Messiah. He's using this accounting language, right? What used to be in the profit column over here, religious performance, adherence to the law, self-righteousness. That's all in the loss column right now. There's only one thing. There's only one thing in the profit column and that's the grace of God. For Paul, it was an encounter with Jesus, it was obedience to Jesus, and it was this reorientation of his whole life around Jesus, and to him, everything else was a waste of time. Jonathan talked last week about uh, Frisbee, Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, and what's interesting is during that same era was a guy named John Wimber, and John Wimber, there's a, there's a great book, by the way, if, you're, if you, this sparks an interest. The Way In is the Way On. It's a book about him. And, and John Wimber founded the Vineyard Movement. Um, that we don't necessarily align. Uh, we haven't done anything official to align with him, but there's a lot of things from the Vineyard uh, Movement that you see uh, happening here. And, and he got saved during the Jesus uh, revolution, if you saw that movie, that, that, that's the era that we're talking about. And, and Wimber was in the band of the Righteous Brothers. I know we got a, lot, a young crowd here, but have we heard the Righteous Brothers, right? Think Top Gun, you never close your eyes. What's that? You lost that love and feeling? You lost that love and feeling? He was in that band, right? Extremely uh, popular and talented jazz musician. And Carol Wimber, his uh, wife, writes this. 
it was right there, kneeling on the floor and sobbing, that John determined how he would spend the rest of his life, listen, as a fool for Christ. After reading the parable of the pearl of great price and seeking counsel from those around him, John gave up his musical career and took on a job laboring for a low wage. Sorry about that. Is that the one? So, you can read that. I'm summarizing. He's a part of this band. He quits the band, and he goes and he works in a machine shop for low wages, right? One of the band members comes into the machine shop, and they're like, John, seriously, have you lost your mind? And John says this, yes, I've lost my mind. I've found Jesus, and I have no intention of finding that mind ever again. His wife said that he was so moved, so thoroughly converted to Jesus that he went around his house and he took down all the plaques and all the awards that he had gotten from his musical career and he put them in boxes. And then he, he, she didn't know what was happening and, and he loaded the boxes up in the back of his truck and he said, babe, will you go with me to the dump? And she rides with him to the garbage dump. And he stands up in the bed of his truck and he's literally kicking the boxes of these awards out, considering them trash, rubbish. And his wife said, I was never more proud of my husband than in that moment. What kind of conversion makes a man do something like that? And there was a time in church, church history where we didn't have what we, what we get to experience every week up here. It wasn't contemporary Christian music, but John Wimber almost single-handedly birthed contemporary Christian music. What God can do through one life, thoroughly converted. One of my favorite sayings I was reading in this book, it doesn't tie, but you need to hear it. It was this, it says... Um, that one day God spoke to John and he said, I've seen your ministry, now I'm going to show you mine. How great. Because those are the things, this is what happens when people are thoroughly converted. It's what, what happened to, to Saul, it's what happened to C.S. Lewis, it's what happened to John Wimber. They all got to a point where they're like, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want to know it intimately and I want to know it experientially. This isn't just, for none of those men was it a worldview shift or an exchange of a belief system. It wasn't just this theological swing. It wasn't a new moral code. It was a full, deep conversion to the person of Jesus. To the point where Paul's sitting in prison in his middle 50s, more alive than he's ever been, writing things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What do you do with a man that converted? You sure can't shut him up. He was content. He was focused. He was now loving. He had things in proper perspective. He had what Jesus called the treasure in a field. He had found the pearl of great price. And he goes on in some of his letters to call this wholeheartedness. In some places, he'll call it single heart, uh, singleness of heart in others. Philippians 2, 
or I think it's three, 12 says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's the one thing. Press on to the one thing. One of my favorite quotes is from Soren Kierkegaard who says this, to be a saint is to will the one thing. To those over 40, you might remember City Slickers, right? Remember Curly? All of life. He says it more colorfully than I can say it from the stage. All of life comes down to one thing. And Mitch is like, well, that's great, but what's the one thing? He goes, that's what you've got to figure out. And that's what Paul figured out. That's what Lewis figured out. Have you? Sounds simple, doesn't it? It sounds, sounds like, you know, but, but we know it's not simple, right? Let's not beat around the bush. It, it's very difficult because when you're completely loyal to something, it's one of the hardest things in the world. Why? Thomas Aquinas says it better than I can because every choice is a renunciation. In fact, a thousand renunciations. What the heck does that mean? It means if you marry one person, you can't marry hundreds of somebody else's. If you choose to live in one city, you can't live in all the rest. If you choose to put all your time and energies in one place, you can't put them somewhere else. There's just one thing that saints do. In fact, Leon Bloy, who's a French philosopher, says this, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is to not become a saint. Did you have the courage to let that sink in? The only deep regret, the only thing that you're going to be laying there, oh, I wish I would have, is that you would have become a saint. Don't wait till it's too late. The older I get, the more I am convinced this is it. This is the desire. In Psalms uh, 37, when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, this is it. If you'll delight yourself in him, he'll give you more of him. And you'll delight yourself more in him and he'll give you more of him. And it's this incredibly rewarding cycle. Lewis gives us some challenging words. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. Starting to come to an end. Jonathan sent me an email that he got this week and I'm just riffing off a few lines in it. It says this, no one sets out on the journey of life to lose his heart. It just kind of happens along the way. We live in an age of such anxiety with so much to do, with so much responsibility that piece by piece our joy is smothered. Our vision is blocked. Our heart, our, excuse me, our hope is eroded. Half-heartedness is enough to hold a man in a living hell. Listen, women may keep their vows, but their dreams die married to a half-hearted man. Children will stop running to the door of a half-hearted man. Sinners will turn away from the gospel of a half-hearted man. 
history will bury in obscurity the lives of half-hearted men. A man cannot thrive with half a heart. But you don't have to live that way. It can change. We can, we can become modern day saints. The world can be turned upside down with wholehearted, thoroughly converted disciples. Again, it can. Conversion doesn't just happen. It is happening, amen? And it's happening in us and it's happening through us because conversion first happens to saints and then it happens through saints, amen? John Tyson says, the great temptation is admiration not imitation. The great temptation is that we would admire the saints. We would put people like Lewis and Wimber and Middlebrooks up on a pedestal and we'd say, oh, we admire that, but we can't. I can't be like that. I could never be like them. Sure you can. Sure you can. Because what, you, what you'll find when you do a deep dive in any study of the saints is they're just like you. They're broken, fragile, struggling, befuddling saints. Peter Crift, ending with this. Band, you can come on up. Peter Kreef wrote a book called Kreef wrote a book called How to Win the Culture War, Chapter Seven. The title says about enough. The title of Chapter Seven: The Secret Weapon That Will Win the War: Saints. If we're going to win the war, have you felt a culture war going on? Do you read about a culture war? Do you choose not to watch the news because you don't want to hear about a culture war? You want to know how to win the culture war? saints. The deepest reason why the church is weak and the world is dying is that there are not enough saints. No, that's not quite honest. The reason is that we are not saints. Can you imagine what 10 more Mother Teresa's would do for this world? What 10 more John Wesley's would do? No, you can't imagine it any more than anyone could imagine how 12 nice Jewish boys would, could conquer the Roman Empire. You can't imagine it, but you can do it. You can become a saint. And I would add, we must, amen? Go ahead. We must. But William Law says this, if you look, and don't let this be con, uh, condemning, don't let this be condemning, Satan, I bind that, you're not allowed to do that, but listen to his words, if you look into your own heart in utter honesty, you must admit that there is one and only one reason why you are not, even now, as saintly as the primitive Christians, you do not wholly want to be. I do not wholly want to be. But that changes today. You hear me? It changes today. And it can change for you. One encounter. One step of obedience. One movement towards reorienting your entire life around the person of Jesus.
let that phrase be an indictment to you. Read it as this hopeful invitation, this open door to, as Dr. Dewey says, that results in the invasion of heaven on earth. Each of us in this room can be a saint. We can. Let me ask you, head nods. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If so, how could you endure anything less? Stand up. You heard us talk about a couple times. I'm landing the plane with this. So, Todd, my time officially stops here. This is the band's time. Okay. So, you heard me say a couple times today about the pearl of great price. I think there's times that we read that just maybe a little wrongly, or maybe it's got a double meaning. You, you, you choose. But anytime you're reading a parable in the Bible, we should do a couple things. Who's lost and who's looking? Does that make sense? When you're reading a parable, who's lost and who's looking? In Luke 15, right? Who's that all about? It's about the looking father, right? It's about Jesus being the one who's lost the coin and he's, he's looking everywhere, right? It's Jesus, the good shepherd, who goes out and finds. Now we apply that to, to the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Who's looking and who's lost, right? So I think what that's saying, at least half of what it's saying, is that Jesus gave up it all because he thought you were worth it. That'll change things, right? So it makes our response a little easier, not, oh my gosh, I gotta let go of all this stuff. Gotta let go of all this stuff, this rubbish. No, we get to let go of the rubbish so we can grab onto all the good stuff, so our hands aren't full with stuff. Amen? Listen, saints, saints change the world. They change the world. And in case you haven't noticed, the world needs more saints. And for us to not be one is just an excuse. No more excuses, amen? There's a prayer team. You can come pray at the altar. You can pray where you're at. You can raise your hands and worship. Holy Spirit, take this message and seal it the way you would want in Jesus' name, amen.